1: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Mukherjee, the host of New Books in Law. Today we'll be talking with Professor Kurt Von Dack about his 2012 work, Freedom Has a Face Race, Identity, and Community in Jefferson's Virginia. Professor Von Dack is an Associate Professor of History and Assistant Dean at the University of Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Mukherjee, the host of New Books in Law. Today we'll be talking with Professor Kurt Von Dack about his 2012 work, Freedom Has a Face, Race, Identity, and Community in Jefferson's Virginia. Professor Von Dack is an Associate Professor of History and Assistant Dean at the University of Virginia. Professor Von Dack, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. Good, Good afternoon.
1: I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to the history of African-Americans in the South.
0: So, yeah, I I backed into this a long time ago. I was a very eager undergraduate, and I thought I wanted to do first Middle Eastern history. I was quickly disabused of that notion. Uh, I took one class and then thought I was going to do colonial history. But in meeting my requirements, I took a course on African-American history that the then director of the Carter Woodson Institute here at the university, um, was teaching and he posed a lot of questions about r- race and identity in American history. And um, I kind of got hooked on it right then and there and sort of followed him around as an undergraduate and chased down whatever lead he sent me on. And that that's kind of where the career began. And, um, and I, I don't think I'm alone with a lot of people who have PhDs. That's kind of where it often starts and you keep chasing the same questions um, from then on, and so I, I again started as an undergraduate, continued that work in graduate school, and um, here I am today, sitting back at the University of Virginia as a faculty member.
1: Great. Um, could you tell us now how you came to write "Freedom Has a Face"? So, and
0: this this is a bit of the same. I, I started with an undergraduate paper. Oh, goodness, a long time ago. And it was on a, a free black family in Virginia. And I, this started with even some of the most seemingly mundane records, tax lists and census reports. And I was able to piece together kind of a mini biography of this family. And uh, again, I think as an eager undergraduate, I think the paper was titled Slaves Without Masters Question Mark. And I know you will probably talk about Ira Berlin's landmark work at some point, but that was kind of the, the pole star for my work. And by the time I got to graduate school, I had done enough research in Virginia that my advisor in graduate school said, well, you know, we, we could basically light a fire with what you wrote as an undergraduate, but you're really looking at good records and you've teased a lot out of them. Why don't you go back and do this a lot more systematically? And I have always thought of myself as a social and cultural historian. And in doing this work, I ended up going through court cases. And it was the court cases where I really fascinatingly began to get the evidence to make claims about social structure and culture in the 19th century rural South. And so the, the book has a really long arc, but it grew out of a, a small undergraduate paper, then an undergraduate thesis, and then uh, my dissertation. And by the time I had finished the dissertation, the story had shifted again uh, e- even a little bit more. And um, so the, that was revised and reworked for the book.
1: Okay. Uh, Would you mind now discussing um, a little more about your sources and the methods you use for piecing together um, a picture of life uh, in this county? And the subjects of your book, they don't necessarily, they've they've not left a very clear paper trail that it was easy for historians to piece together. So it would be interesting to hear how you... um, found a
0: window into their life. So I first have to really uh, thank uh, a local historian here in Albemarle County uh, who is just compiling. He was creating a manual that was a guide to African-American collections. He was working on this when I was an undergraduate and he gave me a partial draft that was my Rosetta Stone. It, it, it told me where some of the records were and that's what got me started, and you're absolutely right. These records are really tricky, and so it's a, a basically every municipal record I could get my hands on. So, I, you know, I started with census reports, uh, property tax lists, real estate tax lists, and then moved from there into deed books, which record right, every business transaction that anyone conducts. They would go into the court, and you start to get you can put together a sort of a social genealogy of Who's connecting with with whom? And so built it from there, then went through, and this was the the painstaking part, but fascinating reading. I went through every will book in the county for 80 years, and every time I saw a name I recognized or there was a mention of a slave or a free person of color, I transcribed the entire thing. And this was, you know, I think I'm on the right on the edge, right? If I had gone to graduate school 10 years earlier, I would have had a lot of index cards. And If I'd gone to graduate school ten years later, I would have been entirely computerized. So I sort of lived half in both worlds. Um, I, I learned how to construct a database without any training, and then did my own documentary transcription, and just kept working through these documents, and then from the the deed books, the the court order books, and then into the the legal records, largely criminal court proceedings. Um, that's where, again, I, th- I think I really found the richest evidence. And when I was done, I simply sifted through and tried to sort by name to see what I could come up with. And I think I'm pretty clear in my int- introduction that, you know, m- m- my book is driven by those who left enough of uh, a, 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 a record behind that I can record them because they didn't leave. Collections of papers, right? This is not, I I fantasize about having Thomas Jefferson where, you know, you have 120 volumes. He's almost said too much. And I have the the opposite problem that the the very people I want to talk about never speak directly, but occasionally in a court case. Um, And so I, I use this database to sift through and track people across multiple document streams. And that's where I started to realize, oh, I have this really great court case. But look, this I can actually say a lot about this person's life. I know that they owned property. I know who they married. uh, I know where they lived. I know who they did business with. And I could start to again. I I find this strange. I think historians and genealogists often don't see themselves as doing similar work. But if you're going to do local social history, you there's a fair amount of genealogical work that you have to do. Um, and so th- that's sort of how I built it. So I, I don't know if that quite constitutes a methodology, um, but this, this is how it grew out. I just chased every document I could find for my time frame, um, again, not paying attention to who the people were, um, and, and, and then sifted at the end to try to figure out, okay, who are the people who I can really start to tell stories about and track across time and space. Okay.
1: Okay. Um. I guess now that we have your method, uh, let's um, right, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Ira Berlin's *Slaves Without Masters* and um, where your work has branched off from his.
0: So, and this is really interesting. I well, this book is what started when I, I read it as an undergraduate, and this is what got me interested. I was just in love with this book, and I think if you look at the historiography on free people of color, right, it kind of creates a silence. It's so well-written, so comprehensive, and so nuanced that I think for a long time, scholars didn't quite know how to work around the edges. So I I was one of those people, and I started really wanting to kind of do a, a local case study of Berlin, and it was during the dissertation phase, it became clear to me, really clear to me, there was something else going on. That didn't quite, and I didn't know how to explain it then, but didn't quite fit with Berlin's model, which is right. He, slaves without masters, is what the what whites largely see free people of color as, and what they want them to be in their ideal society in the South. And free people of color across the many Souths, Berlin charts, routinely resist this. And Berlin, I think, because he has this global South uh, viewpoint, right? His lens is so wide. He, I would say, in some way privileges the power of the law in determining what happens to these people. And that's, again, because if you're doing every state in the what becomes the Confederacy, this is a really huge project. And when I began doing the local sifting, it, it, it wasn't just occasional instances where it didn't really conform to that it was something else. And the, the final piece of the puzzle for me that really helped me figure it out was Laura Edwards's wonderful book, the People and Their Peace, which made me reconsider the social and cultural implications of kind of legal thought at the local level. And it what I found seemed to really fit with that evidence, that there were sort of two competing bodies of law operating at the local level. And what I came to realize is the state laws were often – of distant forces that local communities couldn't exactly ignore, but they were very busy privileging a different conception of the law, right? An unwritten, highly formalized common law that privileged context and community knowledge about people. And so their decisions, even when fully addressing the written law, were really about how to kind of navigate around the the written law to achieve their desired objectives in these cases, because they were really often privileging, again, kind of context and community knowledge about people. Okay. I hope that answered your question. Sorry.
1: Yes, I think it did. (laughs) Um, I guess we could go into a little more detail about law on the books and the actual behavior we see among the inhabitants of Albemarle County.
0: So, and maybe the way to do this is to talk about, I'll use one specific law as an example. And so, in, in, in the post-revolutionary era, in 1793, the state of Virginia passes this law that requires all free po- people of color to register with their local county court and carry free papers. in their uh, according to the law, right, supposed to renew them every three years. And what you, what you find, at least in Albemarle, and it seems to me this evidence has begun to be confirmed by researchers el- elsewhere. Mel Ely's Israel on the Appomattox looking at Prince Edward County documents something similar. Um, I had a former student who's now a Tulane PhD candidate who worked on Bedford County, Virginia, found the same very, very low rate of registration. So something was going on there. And this is where Berlin is right. One is Free people of color are refusing to accept the limits on their freedom and are choosing not to actually follow the letter of the law and uh, register, if at all, certainly not to renew uh, on a, a three year basis. But I think, and I'm sorry, I've kind of lost my train of thought here. Um, I think there's something else going on, right? Those laws matter because this is what the ideal white society wants. But on the local level, they're not often enforcing them. So I think you, this is not that those laws don't matter, but they choose not to enforce them. And I think actually you were going to ask me this question later. I'm going to kind of jump out and answer it here because it fits. Uh, they didn't have to because most of, in Albemarle County, you, you know, 51% of the population is enslaved. And the high watermark for the the free population is 600 people. So while every white person in the county didn't know every free person in the county, they knew enough of them and they knew that the vast majority of the people of color in the county were enslaved. They didn't feel the need to have this – to really hold this registration law um, you know, to uphold it, and so they they chose not to, and they often knew or knew of the very people that they passed so when you 're walking on the rural road and a free person of color comes by, you likely knew who they were and where they lived, even if you weren't uh well acquainted with them and I think this often drove this that the white Al- people white people in Albemarle County even if they had, and often did, had very negative conceptions of free people of color, didn't feel the need to enforce these laws on the local group. And, of course, these laws could always be enforced. This is the really terrible part about it for free people of color. So they're working heroically to fight against these laws and white perceptions. And they're successful to a degree in, again, kind of avoiding the full impact of these laws – but at any point, the white community can decide, you know what, today's the day we enforce the law. And there there is some evidence of that over time, that when they feel the need to begin to enforce the law or when the state-level authorities kind of pressure localities to uphold the law, they at least attempt on paper to do so.
1: Okay. Um, another thing you talk about, and this is connected, is – uh, and this is maybe not so intuitive, or what scholars have usually said um, is that rural art environments arguably are more permissive than urban centers.
0: And, and that, right? This is something I'm just tossing out there. I, okay. I simply do not do rural areas, but I'm struck by a couple things. In most local contexts, and one, most of the people of color. In really every locale in Virginia that is rural, most, the vast majority are enslaved. And so there's not as big of a concern about people of color moving about unrestricted and causing, threatening whites. In the urban context, what you see is so you look at Richmond or Petersburg, right? There's actually significant congregations of free people of color. So much larger populations than you have here and residentially uh, densely congregated in a city and not tied to, it's not tied to patrons, but it's not known or connected to the community. It's impossible when you get, I don't know what the number is where you, you reach the tipping point where it's impossible for a community to have that strong sense of community knowledge. But I think in urban areas, You don't see that. And two, you see vice campaigns that arise in cities that are much more concerted and that routinely sweep through the neighborhoods where slaves and free people of color live. And those vice campaigns are often perhaps partly driven by a desire to solve whatever vice. But this is also about controlling social control of these populations. And these things don't happen to that degree, at all in rural areas. And so I think it's it's maybe a double-edged sword. Yes, they're more permissive, but that's really a result of the population of free people is so small, the slave population is so large, everyone knows everyone, and the opportunities for a real kind of organizing, collective action, Activity and even economic success are truncated by the fact that it's a a rural area.
1: Okay. Um, Could you uh, tell us a bit about the lives of the free people of color in Albemarle County who were born free to free parents in the colonial period and how um, maybe their service in the Revolutionary War influenced their treatment within the community?
0: And so this is a really tricky one. This is, again, where my sources, I don't have the Revolutionary War veterans that I look at actually speaking and saying this, this defines me. What I do see is I see their white neighbors treating them as if this is in some way important. And so I have uh, there are a handful, five or six Free people of color who are free before the war they enlist and of course right this is 18th century virginia they serve but it's unlikely that they the, the ones that i can document are wagoners right they they provide support services but they go to battles they participate in these campaigns and upon their return in the 1820s they apply for pensions which is right both a sign that they could use the money, but I think also you choose to do this because it says something about how you self-identify. But their, their, their white neighbors who served with them, um, I think, go to surprising lengths to support their applications and to appear in court and write affidavits in support for them. And this goes to that concept of it's about community knowledge. So if the community knows of you, as a Revolutionary War veteran, and therefore a good guy, uh, you 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 are treated differently. And I, I've actually had some people push me on property ownership and how important that was. And I think property ownership is a piece of this. But the Revolutionary War veterans are a real mixed bag. Um, Shadrach battles. He is he's a, a, a basically he's a drunkard of no fixed address after the war. And people in the community, I, care for him might be a strong word for him, but they right, they let him remain, even though I don't think he fits a typical independent, respectable person, right? He's not a property owner. He, he is, in fact, an alcoholic. He's often paid in, you know, petty cash and alcohol for his work. But he just the same applies for his uh, Revolutionary War pension, is granted it, and uh, – his white neighbors and people he served with uh, come to his support, which again is not that, that coming to their support, this is something you don't have to do, right? You can, there's a power in simply agreeing to do that, uh, that I think is important social power that these people had to uh, know uh, they were using. But again, I can't, I can't confirm because I don't have their words on it, but I know that they applied and it seemed to be treated as a calling card by the community.
1: Okay. Um, could you discuss now some of the next generation's um, experiences with the legal system?
0: Also, well, I, I think and I would like to say that, right, they learned from their parents how to do this. I, I don't know. But what I see is across time, the the people that I look at, if they are well known in the community and in some way seen as respectable, hardworking members of the community, the, the law operates very differently for them than it does for other people and I, I. don't even know that. I only have a couple people in the book that I think really distinctly suffer at uh, once they enter the court system, and I'm arguing that the ones who do seem to have right identity problems that people don't really know who they are. There's a uh, Marinda French is a, a, a free black. Prostitute who gets into trouble, and the court doesn't even seem to know what her real name is, and they and there's a debate about that in the actual court case. And I was really struck by this that this this is the problem. So she's not the children of a revolutionary war veteran, but she doesn't have the community connections. No one actually knows who she is, and this is not having a single white benefactor. This is being known in the community, and the children of free black veterans, it seems to me benefit from the relationship to their um, fathers who served in the war. And then they maintain this and sometimes with their parents help, right? Maintain reputation through gainful employment and property ownership. So property ownership is definitely important piece of this story that those who are able to maintain property ownership and continue to be really um, hard workers in the community, seem to run into less trouble with the local legal system and with um, their white neighbors.
1: Okay. Um, Would you discuss now uh, the relationship between free people of color and um, their use of the legal system and white patrons and also a lot of um, the people who seem to be the most successful actually had a white father?
0: Um. So I think this, <laughs> I, I've been asked this question, too, and I, I'm struck by in 1833, there's I don't know how many I only knew a couple of these that have been found, but the state legislature in the wake of the Nat Turner Rebellion. Decides that we should have a colonization survey. This is really a detailed census of every free person of color in in every county. And so the local county authorities go out and they conduct a census, and it describes name, age, physical description, job, nearest white neighbor, and then oh by the way, would you like to? Would you be willing to um, be colonized to Africa? And so we have this really detailed. This is right in the middle of my time frame. And uh, the vast majority of the people I'm looking at, at least as they are recorded in documents, are all somatically right, – they're, they're mixed race people, all of them. So I think it, it, it gets pretty tangled. It's hard to say right. this is the benefit of people who – only people who have white fathers. I think everybody has a, a very mixed blood or, or race – And so it's hard to sort of separate those people out. And I think there are, we run into this problem that we actually don't know. We only have what the county clerk recorded them as looking like. And um, Orville Burton in his work in Edgefield district in South Carolina, this is another impressionistic question. He suggested that, right. People might actually, that color as recorded by white officials might actually be a function of community inclusion. And, I I wasn't able to – I do have evidence that there are occasionally people who, when they first appear in the records, are described as very dark, and 30 years later they're described differently, but I I wouldn't call it enough evidence to make an argument about that. So I'm I'm not entirely convinced that white fatherhood is the the, the key piece of this. I think it's – what you see is it's being known by a whole lot of people in the white community that changes – how you are perceived and opens up those doors. One white benefactor is often not enough to protect you. Now, there could be financial benefits from that, and there are definitely instances of that where the the white father prepared for their freedom with education and even property, and that really gives you an advantage when you become an independent free person of color, but you can't maintain that advantage without continuing to be really connected to the community. So it's not I think a lot less about patronage and more about being widely known. And so I again I don't have a barber here in Charlottesville, but if you look at the people who've done work on free black barbers, this is often the case, right? This is a position where you get to know a lot of white people by cutting their hair. And so you have a lot of people you can Call for their support when you need it. And I see something similar with people who work in the hotels in Charlottesville after the university opens that, the, again, it's a handful of people. But they, they know so many white people that when they need white support, they don't have a paternal benefactor who comes to to defense. They have this, you know, they have 100 people who will sign a document in support of them. Again, I don't know if that fully, I get off on tangents. So I don't know if I No, that's answer.
1: perfect. I think the listeners enjoy um, tangents more than <laughs> uh, <laughs> my questions. So um, I guess one of the stories I found maybe the most dramatic was the Scott family and how when you first meet them, they're listed as free people of color and they're ultimately listed as white people right. legally. Um, and their children are educated with um, their white neighbors, and
0: um. and there, there's even again, I I can't document this, but there are right people talked about. So this is really out of Josh Rothman's work from his first book, but um, Nancy West and David Isaacs. So this is a, a Jewish merchant in Charlottesville and a woman of color who runs a baby for children are really active in the community. And even some of the kind of fire eating secessionists in their recollections talked about how their children were educated with whites. And so this was even earlier than the, uh, the Scott family. So there's some evidence of people who are light skinned enough and moneyed, you know, financially secure enough and, Socially connected, that again, some of these laws and some of these social practices don't always fully apply. And I, I, I come back to, you can do this in a county where there are 10,000 slaves. And 500 free people of color, right? I think that if you shift those numbers dramatically, you might not see the same story. But I, again, I don't know because I've not done the research in urban areas. But from what I've looked at in secondary sources, you don't see nearly as much of this in most urban areas. You were talking about the Scots, and right? They actually are legally declared, and they're not quite white. This is, they create a an intermediate status. You are no longer the, not a Negro is the phrase used in the law. And what it means is, if you can demonstrate that you have sufficient white ancestry, you can be declared not a Negro, and therefore you are exempt from all the laws that are hemming in, and, you know, limiting the uh, rights and privileges and citizenship rights of free people of color. So you're free from those. So it doesn't mean that you're white. You're just no longer a free person of color. Okay. And that's what the Scots do, um, as do the Barnett women uh, later. But that's a, a later antebellum development, right, right in the 1860s, I believe, is when the law comes in. Um, but this practice... Uh, the social practice of some free people of color being able to interact with whites in the, in, in the educational setting, in business settings, even in social settings, as something resembling equals, is a practice that has long roots, in, at least in Albemarle, and I get the sense in other communities as well.
1: How is it that newly free people are able to evade the requirement that they leave the state in six months?
0: So the, the, that law is required, 1806, this law is passed. It says after May 1st, 1806, anyone freed has to leave the state within one year, Just so a year, unless they get permission first from the General Assembly uh, to remain. And what happens in the years after this law is passed is localities – inundate might be a strong word but every locality sends in petitions and there seems to be this attitude that right, free blacks as a concept and we're talking in the abstract about them are a dangerous threat to slave society and we don't want them but when you ask people at the local level what about the people you can name that are standing next to you the conversation changes and so you see communities often complaining not about the free blacks they can name in their community, but the ones in the neighboring community. And they tend to do this over and over. So they send lots of petitions to the state, to the assembly, saying we want this person to stay, right? They're hardworking, they're industrious, they're respectable, they're a benefit to the community, we want them to stay. And I think the overwhelming majority of them are actually approved, and eventually the state assembly, I think, thinks We're not really, this is beneath our dignity. We're not really in the business of answering all these local questions about free people of color. So they rewrite the law saying the county courts can make their own decisions about this. This becomes a county court process after that. And you see the same thing here at Elmarle, there aren't even many petitions brought forward. And most of them, until the 1850s, are granted. Or they have this great habit of f- filing the petition and then the court just continues it out of existence. So nothing ever happens. And this is a pretty common practice around the when local areas decide or are told to really follow the letter of the law, they tend to paper follow it and continue it out of existence. Again, until the 1850s, something is definitely different in the 1850s by and large but so that they stick around and i think the reason they stick around is everyone knows they're free no one has a problem with them remaining or or very few people do i'm sure people had a problem but the vast majority of people find it unremarkable and don't find it a problem and everyone knows that they're free and they used to be a slave owned by this person and so they, they carry on it's only when someone decides to object do we have a problem? And I I like it. The the number of people freed doesn't match up at all with the number of people who bring these requests. So the free people of color are often refusing to comply with this. And I I would say likely don't think they have to comply with it. And so they they, they don't feel the need. And these people who are the same thing, they're not hiding, right? They're they're when they have a dispute with their neighbor, they're using the courts to settle disputes so to to my mind they act a whole lot like their white neighbors in that they are quick to anger um, and quick to use they see the courts as a reasonable way to settle disputes the local courts and so they will willingly jump in there even though they are technically in violation of the 1806 removal law and they haven't if ever picked up free papers And when they come in to to see these court cases, the the white community doesn't go, wait a minute, you were freed after 1806, and where are your free papers? Again, most of the time they don't do this. And I I would say, right, this is driven by, again, local community knowledge that this is is what they're privileging and making decisions about who the law applies to and how they administer the law.
1: Okay. Could you talk now... Uh, more about um, the use, free people of color's use of the court system and their trust in the court system, um, especially looking at free blacks who committed acts of violence against white residents in the county.
0: So on this, this, this is a little harder to ferret out. I don't have, you don't see, I don't have a ton of evidence here. I have several really detailed court cases that I can walk through. And I don't know what the free people of color thought of the court cases, but I, I'll talk about I, it's, this. is my favorite story in my book. It's the corn shucking with the Goings brothers, and so I, I don't think the Goings brothers, when and is it Tom Goings, takes the you know this piece of wood, basically a two by four, and clubs the white guy upside the head, and you know knocks him out. I don't think. He is thinking about, I'm going to have to take this to the courts. And I think his story, right, he is thrown in jail for six months while they await trial because this is remanded to a court that only meets once every six months. So there's bad news here, right? He sits in jail for six months. However, when they get around to making the decision, it's back to they privilege local context, So they don't follow... The letter of the law at all, and how this case is supposed to be done. Right? They actually take testimony from a slave, um, and every white comes in and all says the same thing. Right? The the, the 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 white guy had it coming. He didn't really get that injured. And in fact, right? One white member of the community destroys the evidence, saying basically saying, "Well, this will be the end of this. This was just this is a, a male gathering. There's alcohol involved. The white guy is a terrible drunk and so the Tom Goings is acquitted. He gets off, but he you know he spent six months in jail. So I don't know if the decision is the six months in jail, that was punishment enough. Um, but I, I think that's where you see very clearly, right. even though once you get into the legal system, there you, there's a measure of fairness in how, free blacks are treated in terms of their circumstances, they can still be left in jail in a way that a a white defendant would likely not have been left in jail. Uh, So again, I I don't know how they felt about the actual trial process, but the trial process seemed to me to, to do two things. They did not follow the letter of the law and how they processed the entire case. And then their decision was, based again on this context one person was building a schoolhouse that day and is a good guy and a member of the community and the other guy had it coming and is a known mean drunk and so that we don't have to pay attention to actual law we don't have to worry about the fact that we've interviewed a slave because he was there and what matters is what the community thinks about these people in some way. Um so and and uh, the the other case this is also another goings this is a large family but William Goings who it's a premeditated murder he has a running argument with a guy who owns a, a general store in the north part of the county and he waits for him along a, a walking path and is seen by a number of people who live up there with a gun and he has a, it's a pistol and he tells everyone he's squirrel hunting and they just go oh yeah sure isn't free you know as william goings free black guy he's got a pistol and he's hunting squirrels doesn't even occur to them and then he ends up killing um the the general store owner and this is some running dispute that's going on for years with the two of them he however has a very different experience and this is again it's driven not by how they process it but by this local knowledge right he is seen as someone who is failing even his own family um So he's not seen as a respectable, trustworthy, upright member of the community, and his outcome is very different. It seems to me, too, from the court case, if we're to believe the testimony, he was, in fact, guilty that even his own family members saw him with the gun, knew he had a running dispute with the general store owner, and um, knew that he had been uh, threatening four days that he was going to do something to the general store manager. So I think in his case, he may well have been guilty, but his real failure in that court case is the community knowledge about him is he's not a trustworthy, well-connected, well-known person, and we shouldn't keep him in the community. Okay.
1: Um, now could we discuss what you call the possibilities and pitfalls awaiting unmarried women of color in the rural antebellum South.
0: So I, I struck by in, in the, the, looking at the women I found in the records here is one, there's not, there, there's really not a lot of opportunity for free people of color to gain skills and have great economic success in any rural Southern County uh, for a rural locale for women. It's These are even more limited opportunities, and if they don't have someone, right, either preferably, again, a, a white male benefactor or two, they're going to struggle. And what you see is they tend to run toward no, – I shouldn't say tend to run toward, but some of them choose occupations – That have the advantage of being right, you might be your own boss, or you might not have to work directly for white people. And so, what we see is there's a fair amount of prostitution, and this is both poor whites and free people of free women of color participating in this. And they're drawn to this because I think, right, one is you don't have a white boss, you manage your own time, you make a lot of money, but this is a job that puts you in pretty dangerous situations. And th- I don't cover this in my book, but I've been doing research for a digital project here where we're looking at the early university. And as the university pops up and they begin construction, it opens a mixed community, largely of free people of color, but also some whites moves in, they buy property and they live immediately adjacent to the university. And they're coming here for economic opportunity, and they're doing the same kind of work, right? Some of them are engaging in prostitution, some of them are washing clothes, or uh, doing seamstress work. Others are running kind of you know grog shops, so liquor, food, and gaming. These are all kind of risky occupations as a free person for anyone, but particularly as a free person of color. And they're doing this immediately adjacent to the university, which uh, when it opens, there are what, a over 100, you know, white male masters living here who are can really cause problems. And so they, you're putting yourself in harm's way. There's a wonderful woman named Catherine Foster. She buys a house next to the university in 1830. And the, with the, her actual homestead is it's still, it's not like a little park. There was actually a, a grave site. And she had multiple jobs. She may have even been, and I love this, holding the weapons of the students. So when students came to the university, they couldn't bring their guns. So they paid her to keep them. This is a, it's such a messy kind of contradictory concept that there's this free woman of color who is certainly clothes washing, doing seamstress work, and selling food to students who's also getting paid by them to hold her guns. So she's sitting there with this gun cash in her house. But that neighborhood is also when students want to go on a lark and abuse people that's one of the first places they go. So she has her windows smashed, stuff on her porch smashed. So she has this very kind of fraught relationship with the university. But she's here because it provides economic opportunity. And the the, the women who, again, my sense is the, the lure of prostitution is it's an independent opportunity that can actually – Earn you an income and get you to the point where you can do something different, but it's really dangerous. It can be very dangerous work and put you in really threatening positions.
1: Okay, um, could you discuss now uh, interracial sex and miscegenation in Albemarle County?
0: Oh boy, so
1: <laughs> I, I, you know, I, hmm, I'm not the.
0: I, I again, I only talk about this briefly, largely because. Right. Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings have been really – this has been discussed at length by a number of other scholars. So I really i am carrying their torch. And then Josh Rothman's work on interracial sex in early Virginia documents David Isaacs and Nancy West. But their work seems – it seems to me this is actually a, – it's a common experience in some way that there are a lot of people in Charlottesville that – in Albemarle that you can document were engaged in these relationships and the majority of them seem to be white land landowners and either they're slaves who then they later free or with free women of color but there's I have at least one case where actually two where there's a, a free man of color and a white woman who raise families and live I'm going to call it live as if husband and wife, right? In none of these cases does anyone claim to be legally married. There's no um, church ceremony or civil ceremony at all, but they live in a house together, they have children together, and and, and they live as a family. And so the community sees them as a couple. And as long as you don't claim to be legally married, this relationship is fine. But I, I, I am struck by Thomas Jefferson and the others nationally who've been I think really well documented they're not outliers I think this is a really incredibly common practice some of it is driven by right simply the what are seen as the privileges of mastery that as a white master in the south you have sexual access to all the female dependents in your household be they your wife or your slaves you have control over the sexuality so that's part of it I I also think some of this is driven by, if you have a local community that has to interact, right? These free people of color in Almarl, by both by necessity and by demographic fact have to interact with their white neighbors right there they don't live in distant enclaves and separate themselves they're doing the opposite they're they're coming into the places where there's the the most peril but also the most contact and the most opportunity and i think in that context where face-to-face relationships drive this it's not surprising to see that in that one-on-one relationship someone's larger kind of abstract views about race no longer apply. And so I, 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 th- I, I think it's pretty common. I think it happens a, a fair amount. And I, I think my book at least gets at this, that Thomas Jefferson is just one of many people who seems to have had no qualms about having a relationship across the color line in the South. And Martha Hode's work has uh, examined this as well. So this is not isolated to Albemarle County or to Virginia.
1: You mentioned Melvin Ely a little earlier on the show, and we had actually had him on New Books earlier this year. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you see your work in dialogue with Ely's Israel on the Appomattox.
0: Oh, sorry. He he was instrumental in helping me revise the book for publication. And I think we are really largely in agreement. And we... uh, We both wrestle with when you do kind of this micro-historical approach where you're looking at one little place, you can show some really interesting things you might not otherwise see, but it's hard to generalize, right? I can't really say with conviction this represents all of Virginia, but – with his work in Prince, Prince Edward County, right, we're finding a lot of the same things. And I think this is starting to be a trend now. There's kind of a mini field. I'm going to, I'm going to call it a gentle revision of Berlin that's looking at what actually happens on the local level. So, um, Kimberly Welch at West Virginia University, of West, Virgin, West Virginia University, excuse me, is doing this great work on Mississippi and Louisiana. And she's Finding kind of the – a lot of the same stuff that Mel Ely and I have found here in Virginia. So I I don't think this understanding of local social culture is – it's not going to look that different across most of the slave south is the sense I get. But again, that's still only three locales. So, But yeah – we're, we're absolutely in conversation, and uh, his book was came out right when I uh, I just finished my dissertation, and so for revising the book, I had to really go back uh, and closely read his and figure out how to connect the dots. But I found it very easy because we we, fought, we make a lot of the same arguments.
1: What are some of the implications of Freedom Has a Face for future work on African American history? Oh boy. <laughs> It's a big question. It's a big question and, and I,
0: again I really I want to start this by saying I'm always afraid to make implications when I'm looking at only seven hundred and fifty square miles of space in one in one state. But I I think it, it, it we have to be careful. I think the takeaway from what I found here and what again this this other scholars are now arguing is we have to be really careful. It's very easy to read state law and think you understand what it looked like on the ground in time and place. And I think that's the caution that until you've actually examined how the how these laws are enforced and how courts adjudicate these situations, you, you have to be really, really careful. And I, I think we tend to, as 21st century people, right – inadvertently and anachronistically import back into the past our understanding of law. Right? We, I think state-level law is a much more powerful presence in our lives than it was in the lives of most people in the 18th and 19th century. And so we have to be careful when we go back and read those laws that we, um, we understand that. And then Two is, I think we we tend to see law now as, right, it's a very progressive and logical march. These laws develop and expand in a very particular way, and I can't comment on the modern era, whether that's true or not. I suspect not, but for the 19th century, this is absolutely not the case, right, the laws have been passed, but the, 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 the statutes at large that are getting published in every state in the 19th century are attempts by lawyers and state assemblymen to make sense of this law. So I, this is what I love, right, that the, those statutes at large, which make it look like it's kind of a progress and they're all connected, they impose a narrative that probably didn't reflect – how they were experienced on the on the local level at all and that kind of clarity didn't exist at the local level so I, I for me that, that was my big takeaway and I mean this, I started with Berlin's book and I expected to find okay, there's going to be this body of law and it's really going to govern what happens at the local level and there was a point at which I said that's not what's happening so that, I think that's probably the single biggest takeaway and the second would be don't be afraid to go and do a really fine-grained analysis of local spaces. That it's it's worth the effort because you you find these rich, amazing stories that often complicate historical narratives about the past.
1: Okay. Um, to conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now.
0: Oh boy! (laughs) So I I I am not working specifically on a kind of monograph project right now. So bear with. I have done. I'm doing two projects. I have started a digital humanities project here at the University of Virginia with Maury McInnis. She's a professor of art history who does arts and cultures in the Slave South. And she's the vice provost for academic affairs at the university. And she came and gave a guest lecture to a class, uh, one of my classes a couple years ago, that was looking at the UVA landscape, the old academical village. It was a break. We took. I wanted my students to get outside and walk around. It was kind of this time of year in the spring, and they needed a break from lectures in the classroom, and I wanted them to think differently about the slave experience. We had a great time. We ended up just having a conversation with the students, and a student asked, well, how do you know all this stuff? And her comment was, well, just right over there in the Special Collections Library, there's thousands of pages of documents that no one's really ever systematically looked at. And I looked at her and I said, why why aren't we doing this? And so we, you know, grabbed a cup of coffee and brainstormed. And we're now working on a project. And this started out of our interest in, again, kind of a micro-historical approach. She was really interested in the again the politics of race and space, how how slaves and whites interacted and how that can be read in architecture and spatial design and I was really interested in in going through these records how this connected to my own work that the I, I immediately began to run to trace evidence about free people of color that I had done research on that were here and so I knew there was a I could do more social network theory around the people here so that started the whole project and then we got into the records and we realized, Wait a minute! This is much, much bigger, right? This is America's first Enlightenment university, and we have all the records about how it develops pedagogically and administratively in real time. And we, so we, we managed to scrounge up some grant money here and there, and we now we have a website that will be rolling out. It's incomplete, but it's functional enough now that's tracking. People, places, and events over time from 1817 when the university, they first break ground on the university, all the way to 1870. And so it's a mini laboratory that you can examine that's also going to have a 3D digital recreation of the the academical village and the reason we're doing this if you've ever been to UVA right there's it's brick and neoclassical buildings and white trim and then these serpentine walls and these lovely little gardens at the garden club in the, the mid 20th century came in and put in walking paths and planted very carefully and put white benches in so and students sit there and study well, in the 19th century, those were slave workyards. And so slaves lived there and worked there. And so all the sights and smells of what was becoming a, a kind of a small city in Albemarle were happening right there. And we know where some of these buildings were, and we wanted to be able to do a kind of real-time, you would be able to zoom in, see space, understand it, and then connect to what are the events that happened here, who was involved. So it's tracking all these people across all the documents um, that the UVA has and including letters, diaries, and journals. So I'm I'm busy working on that. I expect at some point we will produce something publishable out of that. We're we're just trying to get the website up and functional right now, but really exciting project. And then the second thing I'm working on, I'm the co-chair of the President's Commission on Slavery and the University here at UVA, and we are trying to follow-up on work, particularly that Brown and Emery have done, so we're building on the the Brown model here, and that's going to really gobble up most of my time for the next two years or so, but we are planning to produce a a publishable volume that I don't, it's not quite a straight work of traditional scholarship. It, It will be scholarly, but I think we're going to see this as also being very visual, because I think the Academical Village, it's you can do really neat things with it visually to talk about slavery, culture, and, again, the, the, the politics of space. And we want to do some of that in this book where we're looking at the lives of the enslaved, um, the pro-slavery thought promulgated by people at UVA. Um, and then lastly, again, the, the space and how it functioned and what this meant for Uh, the enslaved at UVA. So I'm working on those two projects right now. I think that's going to drive most of my work. I have a third project that I I sadly, I don't know when I'm getting to it. I was going to do work on an interracial fishing village, a series of interracial fishing villages along the down east Maine coast. But these two projects have really gobbled up my time and I think are uh, sufficient to warrant my time and energy. So we have both have a website. I don't know the, it's called Jefferson's university, the early life project. If you Google it, it will come up. And then slavery.virginia.edu is the commission website. And again, I'm very busy with those activities right now. In fact, we have a, a big event just next week. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, I hope to return to the monograph world shortly after that.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. Um, sound like very exciting
0: and unique projects for projects and, and I'm excited. They they interrelate, they dovetail really neatly. That we've brought in a research associate to to be the full time researcher on this project, and we I immediately connected her to our digital project staff because we've already teased out some of the data about the early history of slavery here. So we're I like it that in the end we're gonna create this website that does so much more than I wanted it we wanted it to do initially, but it's also gonna help answer these questions uh, about slavery at the early university. So
1: Fantastic. kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, very, very fun. So I wanna thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Great. Thank you so
1: much. My pleasure.